0: good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Groda your host for this weekly live program coming to you over EWTN Radio. And I'm coming to you from the Coming Home Network International, our studios in central Ohio. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I, I hope you're, you're returning. Listener, I hope this program's been an encouragement to you. Each week I invite a guest to, to join me to talk about a verse they never saw. In other words, usually my guests are guests who had a love for Jesus Christ and recognized the authority and inspiration of Scripture. But in the process of studying Scripture or in in living out their faith, they were encountered by Scripture texts that awakened them, first to a deeper walk with Jesus Christ and to a deeper walk and sometimes a reunion with His church. And so uh, that's what the Deep in Scripture program is about. And we'd love to hear from you, both whether This program has been an encouragement to you, but also if you have some questions about anything we say. So let me up front give the phone numbers just in case you'd like to give us a call. 800-664-5110 or 740-450-1175. Or you can send me an email at radio at chnetwork.org. We have a website, deepinscripture.com, just to remind you all the archive programs, as well as you can watch me sitting here. Uh, talking to you on the radio. Our guest today is Dr. Robert Coons. Robert uh, has joined me on the Journey Home program. If you'd like to hear his entire conversion story, you can go to EWTN.com and, and get the audio archive for the Journey Home program. But Rob is a professor of philosophy at the University of Texas at Austin, where he has taught since 1987. He specializes in metaphysics, philosophic logic, and philosophy of religion. He's the author of two books, Paradoxes of Belief and Realism Regained. And he's also the co-editor of the forthcoming, The Waning of Materialism, new essays on the mind-body problem, published by Oxford University. Uh, Rob earned his MA in philosophy and theology at Oxford and a PhD at UCLA. And originally a Lutheran, he joined the Catholic Church in June of 2007. So he's just been a a brother in the Catholic faith just for a couple of years. Um, I asked him to choose some scriptures that were a particular encouragement to him. And he's chosen four sections, and they're kind of huge. So I'm not going to read them all, but I'll give you the background. So while we're discussing them in the program, you can... uh, Read the entire context later as we discuss each verse. He's chosen uh, John chapter 2, verse 5, John chapter 19, verse 26 27, John chapter 21, 15 through 19, and then Acts chapter 15. Pretty much the whole chapter that deals with the Jerusalem Council. But let me back up a bit and let me read you the key verses from these sections. Then we'll take a break and Dr. Coons will join us. So 1 John chapter 2, verse 5, and this comes to you in the context of the wedding at Cana. But the verse that he's chosen for us to focus our attention is verse 5, when it says, His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. And then let's jump to John chapter 19, verse 26 and 27. This is during the crucifixion. Jesus is on the cross and below him are all those who've gathered, many of who just to gape at this man who's up on a cross. The the group that's missing from the cross are most of the apostles and disciples, but yet there at the cross are his mother and the disciple John. And we read in verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing near. He said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own home. Then verses John 21, 15 through 19, this is the familiar story after the resurrection, uh, after Peter who had gone out fishing with two of the apostles and, and some others. Uh, had, they identified Jesus walking on the beach. And so Peter jumped out of the boat and and the rest of the uh, disciples rowed in. And we have this wonderful encounter with Peter and Jesus after they'd eaten. And I won't read the whole little paragraph. I'll read verse 15, which is gives the key thought to the passage. It says, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, Do you love me more than these? And Peter said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Feed my lambs. And then we have the Acts chapter 15, 6 through 29. It's a long passage, though an extremely important passage. Those of you who are familiar with Scripture, this is one of those passages that I didn't quite catch the significance of it when I was a Protestant pastor. But it's very significant, the whole key of what's going on here in relationship to the authority of the church, in relationship to the authority of Scripture alone. And we'll talk about that in a little while as well as the other topics of this passage. But particularly let me read verse 28 and 29 and then we'll take a break. For it it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from unchastity. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. Don't forget to watch the Journey Home program with Marcus Grodi on EWTN. Each week, Marcus meets new guests who have journeyed to the Catholic faith from many backgrounds. Be challenged and encouraged as they witness to how their love for the truth of Jesus Christ has brought them into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the Journey Home program on EWTN, live on Monday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Time.
1: If you enjoy the Journey Home television program on EWTN, you'll want to purchase a copy of Marcus Grodey's book, Journey's Home. Journey's Home contains the conversion stories of men and women who, as a result of their surrender to Jesus Christ, heard a call to follow him more completely in the Catholic Church. Many of them were Protestant pastors or missionaries. Others were laymen who, though working in secular jobs, took their calling to serve Christ in the world very seriously. To order your copy of Marcus Grody's book, Journey's Home, simply visit our website at www.chresources.com or call us toll-free at
0: 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host, and our guest today is Dr. Robert Coons. Hello, Robert.
2: Hi, Marcus. How are you?
0: Well, it's great to have you join us today. I know you're, are you teaching courses this
2: summer? No, no, just writing. Oh, oh. well, I was Mm -hmm. going to
0: say you can kick back and relax, but I know writing is not kick back and relaxing. Yeah,
2: that's right. It can be hard hard work, especially when you've got that blank uh, screen in front of you.
0: Well, especially when you're you're writing philosophy.
2: Right. (laughs) Yeah. It can be tough sometimes, but it's fun. It's I, always, well, always interesting.
0: if it's your gift, which God has given you, and uh, which personally I think is a is a great gift because I do believe that one of the main reasons our country and our world is in such a mess is not only because far too many do not know Jesus Christ in the church, but because so many of them have bad
2: philosophy. Right. No, I think that's right. And I think that's what makes the soil so so hard in, in many ways for the gospel.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that well, you know, Thomas Aquinas and others really showed that that reason and faith go together, and one without the other leaves a mess.
2: Right. Exactly. Yeah. But did you did you um, hear the Pope's recent talk on Thomas Aquinas? It was, no. Uh, it was really good. He makes exactly that point that Aquinas uh, affirms the importance of reason, but shows us that reason isn't enough. We have to go beyond it to faith as well.
0: All right. Well, I encourage the audience listening. Uh, got any questions about philosophy, please pass them along. I gave you the emails and the phone calls, phone numbers earlier. If you forget them, they're on the website, deepinscripture.com. But, but, um, but, Robert, we, I'm sure philosophy may come into our discussion, but that wasn't the main point of our Deep in... I'm going to have you host the Deep in Philosophy program, all right? Yeah. <laughs> That'll be fun, yeah. It would be. It would be sweet. Maybe we'll start one in the future. But yeah. You chose um, a few passages from John and Acts, right. and uh, maybe just in general, why these passages?
2: Yeah, so I, I decided to focus on um, two figures, Peter and Mary, Mary and Peter, and uh, I think because it, 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 it's, they're, they're, they're two people who, whom when one really sees, sees differently as a Catholic compared oh, yeah. to one's experience as a Protestant. So I, I mean, I was well. I was familiar with these with with Mary and Peter, and I'm actually familiar with these four passages uh, as a Lutheran for all those years. But one thinks of them as historical figures, mm-hmm. um, very much like Noah or Elijah, something like that, from whom you could learn important things from their lives and see them as models. But but not really thinking of them as as people who have a ministry in our lives today, people with whom we can relate today and um, I, th- I thought these four passages in particular um, were ones that going back to them as a Catholic I now see that they are teaching that these aren't merely historical figures mm-hmm. that, that Mary and Peter have ongoing ministries ongoing vocations in God's uh, purposes in our lives today
0: you know that that really brings us right to that first passage uh, the way you describe that in a, in a perfect sense. Uh, where we have in John 2 verse 5, Mary saying to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Okay, well, yeah. we Americans may quote, uh, a stitch in time saves nine, or early to bed, early to r- uh, rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. We know that that was in Ben Franklin's uh, Little uh, Farmer's Almanac. mm mm-hmm. And so we may believe that, yeah, early to bed, early to rise is a good thing for us without knowing anything about the private life of Ben Franklin or caring. Right. He just delivered the little bit of wisdom. Right. And I'm wondering if that's the way you and I both treated this passage in John chapter 2, verse 5.
2: Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, one one thing to, to mention here, too, is that, um, is that this is... This passage is emblematic of the fact that Mary is is present at all the important events in Jesus' life, you know, from the con- conception, birth, the presentation of the temple, uh, this which is his, yep. Jesus' first miracle, his first action, you know, as as the Messiah, and then of course at the at the Passion, the the burial, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the Ascension, Pentecost, and of course other than Jesus himself, she's the only person who's present in all of those those significant events. So she's she's fully sharing in his, his life and his ministry, uh, you know, from the beginning to the end.
0: In fact, you, you point out something I hadn't thought of, and that is that if, if the person telling the servants wasn't significant, yeah. in other words, if, if that wasn't significant, then the story might have had more impact if it was um, the mother of the bride. Mm-hmm. Or the mother of the groom, yeah, with the authority at the wedding to tell the servants, "Listen to this guy."
2: Yeah, but that's no—that's not- right. I mean, one of the things to ask in all these passages is why is Mary here, why, or why is Peter here? Um, yeah. Because you're right; the, the miracle could have happened. One might think without her, mm-hmm. and yet and yet the story highlights her presence.
0: Um, I'm wondering in your own journey, then, when you. Saw this passage? Did it have an impact on you, awakening you to Mary? And in what way did it? It,
2: I think it's it's beginning to. I I mean, I have to say that it's it's a a gradual thing. Sure. Um, I I, I have a certain amount of um, envy for my Catholic friends who grew up in in the faith because I think that uh, one has a more one has a stronger emotional connection to Mary when you grow up with it as a child. And I didn't have that, so I'm still really struggling with that Mm -hmm. um and i understand
0: that a lot of converts it's the same way right
2: yeah um one of the things i think about this passage too that that helps in correcting some of the misconceptions that that protestants tend to have is is the idea that if we show if we show devotion to mary and if we focus on mary that that is somehow detracting from christ Mm -hmm. that there's some sort of competition here between mary and christ uh, and this is the sort of thing I, I was taught a lot, or and believed, really, as a Protestant, is that, yeah, this, you know, Mary's fine, but this Catholic devotion to Mary is, you know, every minute you spend thinking about Mary, praying about Mary, that's a minute you're not spending thinking about Christ, right? Mm-hmm. And so from that Protestant point of view, that seemed like a loss. And what's crucial about this passage, I think, is that it shows that, that, that that's not the case, right? That every minute you spend with Mary is a minute you're spending with Christ because she just points us to christ she says do whatever he says right um she in doesn't fact, have an you... independent agenda right yeah. <laughs> um she doesn't uh say oh good you know think about me that's great yeah. um uh, don't 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 think about christ no she's 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 like a transparent window really in, in that the, the light of christ comes through her to us and so um yeah, that, that that to me was one of the things that's very significant
0: about this. And uh, let me confirm a little bit what you said earlier, also, Rob, and that is a, a lot of certainly a lot of Protestants, and I was there, uh, as you were, you do have this misunderstanding about Catholic Church. but converts coming in who for so long, recognize that our commitment to God is to be soul soul. In other words, there's one God and I commit my life to Him. There's no other gods. Right. Um, and that by giving Him complete devotion uh, in my life, in my family, in my work, that's what I'm called to do. So it can take a while for us to get accustomed, not just to marry, yeah. but there's a lot of intercessors called the, the communion of saints. Right. Right. But that's what Jesus invites us to do, is to have a part which we see in John 19, we'll get to in a second.
2: Right, yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, that, uh, I mean, the, again, the Protestant understanding of the communion of saints is really impoverished, I think. They, they think of it as experiencing a fellowship with, with other believers here and now on earth, but they're not really taking into account the fact that um, the death is no barrier to that communion, right, mm-hmm. and, and that we, we have communion with the Church triumphant, with Mary and with all the saints, as well as with the believers here on earth
0: and uh, and her message do whatever he tells you
2: yes uh, she's so consistent about that too <laughs> I, you know i mean one of the things that one one again here's sometimes as a protestant is that there's something you know quasi-pagan about this mary marian devotion as though she were some sort of goddess like um, athena or or something like that but but I mean, Athena never says, you know, do whatever Zeus tells you. you know, Athena's got her own agenda, her own personality. <laughs> she, you know, she wants devotion to herself. Um, Mary is totally unlike any pagan goddess in that respect. Right? She is completely devoted to Christ. She's the perfect disciple of Christ.
0: Yeah, our modern philosophy is do whatever you want to do or do whatever you think is right. Yeah. Uh, right. Uh, even do whatever your conscience tells you to do, which. An unformed conscience is, is worthless uh, to a certain extent. Right, uh, right. But here he's pointing, she's pointing totally to
2: Jesus. Right, yeah, exactly. Well, let's. You want to
0: jump to the next passage, John 19? Is that sure? Yeah. John, let me read it again just for the audience' sake, and then uh, Rob, you can tie it in there. John 19: 26-27. Again, the context is Jesus is on the cross, and uh, uh, I mean it's which is why we have crucifix as a part of great catholic tradition because it reminds us doesn't, doesn't imply that Jesus isn't resurrected rather it re, we know he's resurrected it reminds us of why he died for us right. but at the foot of the cross we find this powerful story when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing near he said to his mother woman behold your son and then he said to the disciple behold your mother and from that hour the disciple took her, her into his own home.
2: Yeah, I mean again this was a passage that that I was familiar with as a Protestant. Right. I mean we would we would read these passages every you know every good Friday every holy week. Mm-hmm. And uh, we knew that the seven there were the seven words, the seven things that Jesus says, you know, on the cross and that obviously those are important. Um, but this one never really seemed to rise to the same level as the other six. I mean yeah, it was uh-huh. Uh, it was uh, he was dealing with his own specific family situation, wanted to make sure that his mother was well taken care of. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, you know, you could take certain things from that, like you should you should care for your mother, not not neglect her, and so on. But uh, but that was pretty much it. I mean, that was, that was all the significance that as a Protestant one was able to draw from this. Uh, and then going back to it now as, as a Catholic, looking at it, I think well, you know, Jesus could have he knew he was going to die. Right. He could have made these arrangements for his mother in advance if, he, if that was all this is about. Um, but he chose to, to use one of these seven uh, moments during his passion to single her out and to, um, and to give her as mother to this disciple, to John, and the disciple, his son, to, to her. Um, it's, it's clear, I think, that, that, that this is intended as a uh, as a universal mm-hmm. giving right um, i mean john throughout this book calls himself the disciple whom jesus loved the disciple that jesus had agape for yep. and i think it's it's clear that he does that in order to say look i'm just every man i'm every christian mm-hmm. right I'm, I'm standing in here for the, the typical christian believer and so when, when when jesus tells john that this is behold your mother He's saying that to the whole church, saying to to all of us as Christians. uh, My mother is your mother. You are her son.
0: Um, And and let me just jump in there and just remind the audience that it was in this book of John that we find the famous passage that you see posted at every football game in America, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his son. You put that in the context here. Just Mm -hmm. like you said, John is identifying himself as the universal son whom God has loved. Right. And we see Jesus affirming that in this. Woman, behold, your son, just as you were saying, Rob. And uh, um, it, it also says something, which, again, I didn't see Rob when I was a Protestant, that, you know, hey, if Jesus had brothers and sisters hanging around in that crowd Mm -hmm. it would have been uh you know a a, a real slight to them Mm
2: -hmm.
0: that's a good point yeah for him to give his mother to this Mm non-relative um Mm -hmm. if you know in that sense caring you know he, he otherwise he would have said over he would have turned over to the crowd next to him and and there's Bill and Steve and Jim over there. Mm-hmm. uh... Hey, get over here and take care of your mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's weeping. She's upset. Right. Um, but that's not what he did. Right. Uh, right. Which implies that he doesn't have brothers and sisters to take care of her. We are. Right. His brothers and sisters.
2: Right. No, that's a good point. That's a good point. I mean, the fact that John is not a relative at all. It's not even a cousin or nephew or anything. Yeah. Um, that again is, is indicating this is more than just um, doing uh, exemplifying the duty that a son should show to his mother. This is this is um, uh, something that's being said to all of us as Christians uh, that uh, that Mary is, is is to be our mother. And uh, so I think it's uh, it, it, it it illustrates I think a, a general theme again, which is that um, um, there there are many. Passages in Scripture that have much richer meaning, that have a more have a universal significance in a way that that you can't find on your own without without the Church's guidance. Um, and this is again the weakness of, the, of sola scriptura. I think right. is that uh, when one tries to to figure these passages out on one's own, and you're, you're automatically going to miss a lot of the significance that's there if you don't have the, the guidance of the Holy Spirit working through the Church to, to illuminate these passages, passages for us. So one of the things I would really say to um, um, to some of my Protestant friends is, um, you know, given, given their respect for the Scripture, um, consider looking at the Scripture from the Catholic perspective. right? In other words, rather than just looking at the Scripture from a Protestant point of view and seeing if you can find proof texts for Catholicism, just as an experiment, look at the Scriptures from the Catholic perspective and then see if the Scriptures don't make more sense, if they, if they don't have new levels of meaning that, that emerge from them in ways that you couldn't have found without that perspective. So I think that's the real acid test for the Church's authority and, and truth.
0: I couldn't agree more, Rob. Thank you. And, and I'd like to just point one other thing out with this passage, which is, I think, another interesting part of it where, in in Matthew's famous story in chapter 25 of Matthew, we have this the story of the judgment, the sheep and the goats, and, and they're being divided. And, and uh, why is that? And, and the ones that are on the one hand is because they loved they cared for people Mm -hmm. and Jesus says truly I say to you as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren you did it to me and the way I see that connecting with this passage is that you can imagine visually Jesus there is going through the excruciation of the cross and below him are his mother and John looking up at him Mm -hmm. but what he's kind of saying is the way you love me the way you do that is you look at each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what he's doing here. He's telling us that the way we continue as his brothers and sisters to love him is to love one another and to love his mother. Mm-hmm. If we are his brothers and sisters, then we are to love his mother the way he did. And, and whatever we do for her, we do for him. There's that context of that parable. Let's take a break, Robert. We, yeah. We come back. We'll talk more about that if you like. But we can also jump on to the John 21 passage. Great. You. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host Marcus Grode. I am joined today by Dr. Robert Coons, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your Global Catholic Radio Network. EWTN.com is online with program information, the latest news, Pope Benedict XVI, plus tools for living the faith like prayers, Catholic Q&A, and other resources. Log on today to EWTN.com.
1: Follow the compelling journey of one man who became a Church of Christ minister and found himself entering the Catholic Church. Bruce Sullivan shares his conversion story in his new book titled Christ in His Fullness. In this book, he communicates a passionate love for Christ and the inexhaustible treasures of grace found in the Catholic Church. Perhaps you, too, will discover the same riches in the fullness of Christ. To order a copy of this book for yourself or a friend, please visit our website www.chnetwork.org or call us at one 800 664
0: Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host Marcus Grothie. I'm joined today by a former guest from the Journey Home program, Dr. Robert Coombs, and he's a professor of philosophy. At the University of uh, Texas at Austin. Hey, Rob, is it difficult sometimes teaching as a Catholic philosophy at a state university?
2: No, I really haven't, I haven't had any difficulties with that at all. Um, it's, uh, I think. Um,
0: you love the challenge.
2: Yeah, yeah, and you know the fact that the fact that that I do teach from, from that perspective um, is something that my students actually welcome, because they know there's so few opportunities to hear that point of view here. Sure. And so we get, I get a lot of students in, in my classes, and um, I, do a class, I do a course on uh, contemporary Christian philosophy, mm-hmm. where it's mostly Christian philosophy the last hundred years or so, uh, and about half the class is non-believers, and, uh, but they, they enjoy it, because they, you know, they, they enjoy getting a chance to learn about a, a new perspective. that's not available otherwise.
0: Well, I mean, to me, that's what liberal arts in its intended sense is to do. Yeah. And uh, sadly, uh, liberal arts today often is very truncated and uh, skewed in the, in the more liberal
2: perspective. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's true. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, professors are like other people. They, they tend, when they're given a choice, to want to pick other people that are like themselves for their to be colleagues. And so you get this get the, you, you tend to get a monoculture, very monotonous uh, culture where, where everyone thinks the same. Well, I'll tell That's you not what a university is supposed to be. Exactly,
0: exactly. Yeah. And our prayers are with you, my friend, uh, fighting the battles there it's, and God bless you for, yeah. for doing God. it there. Uh, and as I said earlier, I, I really do believe that one of the biggest problems in our culture is that 99.9 percent of Americans have never studied good philosophy, let alone philosophy at all, you know that, yeah. You know, there we are, and uh, so we have people yeah. that yeah, believe. Yeah, of the
2: philosophy they learn is is just um, more confusing than, than helpful. Yeah, yeah, people that believe that
0: that animals and humans are totally equal and the same, right, and deserve equal rights and equal protection under the uh, under the Constitution, just don't get it. Doesn't mean that we're against animals, but there is a difference, right?
2: Uh, so. Or people that think that uh, logical argument is a kind of coercion. Yeah, yeah that's, I get that quite a bit.
0: <laughs> Oh, yeah, it's a, it's a, yeah. yeah, that's a contradiction. I mean, that's that's funny. Uh, all right, John 21, right? Is that where we're at? Yeah, John 21 yeah. Mm-hmm. is a great long passage. I just read one verse of that. Let me read that one verse again. Uh, when they had finished breakfast, and this is the resurrected Jesus meeting with Simon Peter and and a few of the other disciples, uh, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to them, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. What was the significance of this passage for
2: you, Rob? Well, right. So now we're switching to the the person of Peter. And again, the question of what is the present day significance of peter for us as christians mm-hmm. uh and I, I decided not to use the familiar passage from matthew 16 <laughs> about uh, you know you are the rock upon which the, the church will be built um, partly because as a Protestant i was familiar with that passage and i knew that it was a problem for us, <laughs> I, <laughs> and uh, so we, we, had, we had to sort of wrestle with that passage but this is one that i tended to overlook and yet it seems to me that even if you didn't have matthew 16 John 21 is making much the same point, which is that uh, Jesus is, is singling Peter out here and he's giving to Peter a, a universal ministry, right? Uh, a universal um, shepherdhood uh-huh. uh, over over his flock. Um, and he's, he's talking you know, directly to Peter one on one and he says to him, "Feed my lambs, then in the next verse, Uh, look after my sheep, and finally again, feed my sheep. Uh, It doesn't say feed some of my sheep. It doesn't say just feed them for a certain while. Um, Or
0: go out and start a new flock and feed your own sheep. Right, exactly, yeah, that's right.
2: Um, And you know, um, when you have a flock, you have to have a single shepherd of that flock. You can have some under shepherds helping him, but there's gotta be an authority that uh, Mm -hmm. decides whether the flock is gonna stay or go, and when is it gonna go, and where is it gonna go? And uh, and it's clear, I think, that when, when Jesus tells Peter that he's to look after, he's to care for the sheep, and to see that they're fed, that uh, that he's giving to to Peter um, a uh, again a universal role here. Um, and so that you know that, that I think is is um, very significant. Yeah. And uh, no one has to say again reading this as a Protestant. I thought, well, this is just he's just talking about he's just talking to Peter. He's restoring Peter to the relationship with himself after Peter denied him three times, and so in this case, Jesus asks him three times if he loves him, and, and and sort of affirms him by by giving him these these three commands. And all that's true, right? So so the the, the, the this, reading it this way doesn't in any way take away from that um, particular meaning, so to speak, the meaning of this uh, inter- interaction for Peter as a, as an individual human being. But at the same time, it's, it's clear that there's more than that going on
0: here. i, I got to uh, tell you, Rob, I remember when I preached on this as a Protestant minister. Um, and so, again, this would have been about 20 years ago. And I remember preaching on this passage very clearly, though, because I had just read a book which I highly recommend, and that's C.S. Lewis's book on the four loves, mm-hmm. in which he distinguish, distinguishes between the four different Greek words used for love. Yeah. And it's a wonderful book. But what I did with this passage was, of course, analyzing the Greek, as I was taught to do before I preached. And it's interesting that Jesus uses different words, and Peter uses different words for love in this passage. I don't know if you knew this.
2: Yeah, I I had run across that. Yes. Um, In fact, I I found it hard to um, uh, figure out what the implication of that is, other than (laughs) he's talking about love in a very broad way here. Yeah, well, Um,
0: the first time, Simon, son of God, do you love me? That's the word agape. Mm-hmm. And then Peter answers with the words phileo, which is more of a friendship love. Right. So in other words, and, and then the second time when, Peter's, when Jesus answers, Simon, do you love me? That's agape. And Peter says, Lord, you know that I love you, phileo. And then finally the last time when he says, Simon, son of God, do you love me? But using phileo, which is a friendship love, Jesus, it's like he drops it down and Peter says, do you... Um, you know that I love you. And I think that time he uses agape. <laughs> so it's yeah. Yeah, It's like, what is he trying to say? Well, I remember making a big deal about Jesus expecting a lot more of us in a sacrificial way, but usually we come at him because we don't understand that kind of love. And so he has to come down to our level. I mean, I don't know what I did with that, mm-hmm. but I com- the point is I completely missed right. what he's saying to Peter here because right. I, partially, I don't think I was trying to avoid it. I just didn't see it in right. the bigger context.
2: Right. Yeah, you're distracted by other things or, or just focusing on the, the narrow situation and not thinking about it uh, more broadly. But yeah, telling, telling this man that he is, he is to feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, that's, that is um, that's an amazing thing.
0: Right? W- when we see um. Jesus, even in this book, John, Referring to him himself in in the words that would have been used to God the Father in the Old Testament as the shepherd of Mm -hmm. Israel, he himself uses the reference to himself, I am the good shepherd. Right. And then he passes that responsibility on to Peter. Put that in the context of Matthew 16. Right. Put that in the context of the shepherd passages. It's very clear that we have the under shepherd. To take yeah. care of the church, it's very clear, at least within our context.
2: Right. Yeah, and, and shepherding is an ongoing thing. Right. It's not. I mean, Peter can't have finished the job of shepherding his the flock in his lifetime, and then it was over. I mean, the flock still exists. It still needs to be taken care of. It still needs to be fed. So that that petrine ministry that Jesus is giving to him must be carried on in the church. And uh, then the question is, well, who who has that ministry? Who is the successor of Peter's role here as shepherd? And you know, again, looking at the history and experience of the church, there's only one possible answer. That's the pope, the, mm-hmm. the bishop of Rome. There just isn't any other plausible uh, candidate as the successor of Peter.
0: That's right. In every time in history, yeah. you look back every every era. We look into that and see that, you know, the
2: universally recognized, really.
0: That's right. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm i sorry to take more of your time on the radio, but I want to just add something in here because sure. I actually have sheep in my oh, little really? farm. And uh, we had 10 sheep. We're down to nine right now. But um, I really learned something just recently on something very significant that deals with this, and that is we had one sheep that was born uh, and the mother died. And so we had to, to bottle feed this little lamb, beautiful. It was a black lamb, actually. Huh. Uh, all the rest are, are uh, Suffolk uh but the point is that the, the other ewes all had new babies too, and they're out way in the field, they're taking care of themselves. I come out and take a look at them once a day or once every couple of days. doing fine. But we had this one little lamb that we had to bottle feed, and we kept it right with us in our house and then up front for weeks. Well, the wow. reality is those sheep that are out in the field, they won't let me get close to them. I take <laughs> care of them. They, they know me. They're not afraid of me, but there's no bond. Uh The little lamb we kept in their house, I can't go anywhere without that lamb being right with me. And it reminded me Uh that in the days of Jesus, those shepherds lived with their sheep. Right, yeah. They were intimate. They were close. They knew them. All that Jesus talks about, they weren't like modern shepherds that, you know, we're distant from our lambs and we just keep them out there. They know them. So what...
2: Recognized His voice, as He says. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. What Jesus is asking Peter to do as His pope as You bis- wouldn't use the word, but as the head of the flock is a very intimate ministry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, the bishops and the people are to be intimate. They're side by side. They're to pray for and to take care of one another. I mean, that's, that's mm-hmm. the ministry of the church. But the bishop carries a unique responsibility for the care of those under him. Yeah. And we see that being given here by Jesus to Peter. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah and again you know just to to, to beat on a dead horse. Uh, yeah. I mean I mean it's clear that this is not putting something between us and Christ as though Peter or the bishops or the pope now is a uh, is is um uh, a kind of obstacle between us and Christ. It's 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 the opposite. It's rather uh it's it's the way in which Jesus exercises his shepherding of us is through these through Peter and through his successors and through the bishops. Um,
0: yeah in the whole context you know Matthew 28 go ye therefore make disciples So mm-hmm. he's, he's, it, but he says it's my authority and I'm with you forever mm-hmm. there's a bond and then even in this passage it's my sheep yeah that's every right. time
2: it's not your sheep that's right and mm-hmm.
0: verse 19 he ends with and after this he said to him follow me mm-hmm. so there's that constant connection Jesus as the model and the Lord the, the bishop following taking care of and at the same time as Paul told them, you imitate me as I imitate Jesus. Right. There's the living within the flock of God.
2: Right, right, exactly.
0: All right, we've got a big passage to uh, cover. In fact, what I'm thinking of doing, I'm going to take another break now. Okay. And then we'll come back and we'll deal with the Jerusalem Council.
2: Okay, sounds great.
0: You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. I am joined today by Dr. Robert Coons, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network.
1: Please visit our website www.chnetwork.org or contact us at 1-800-664-5110.
2: The Coming Home Network International
0: and Marcus Grodi invite you to join us for our eighth annual Deep in History conference coming this fall to Columbus, Ohio. This year, our focus will be on the authenticity of the sacred scriptures as we ask, how firm is your foundation? Join us the weekend of October 22nd as we bring together another exciting list of guest speakers. For more information, go to deepinhistory.com or call us at 800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grody. I'm joined this week by Dr. Robert Koons. Let me just, though, uh, before we get into the program again, remind you that next week on the Journey Home program, our guest will be John Nargang. He's a convert from secularism. He's a great guest. You'll want to turn in and watch that program. Uh, that's Monday night on EWTN, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. See you on the Journey Home. All right, Dr. Koons. We've got this great, great long section, Acts chapter 15, 6 through 29. Uh, I'm going to let you tell them what the issue is.
2: Yeah. So uh, the reason for this is significant for me, uh, me was significant for me as a Protestant especially, as it goes to this question about the authority of the church versus sola scriptura. And as a Lutheran, you know, we were taught that, that the church has no authority per se, that the only authority is from the scripture itself. And in particular, the Church can't legislate for its members. Um, Luther was big on this. Uh, He wrote a piece called The Freedom of the Christian, in which he says, you know, our our conscience can be bound only by the Scripture, not by anything the Church says. So this, this passage, I think, speaks directly to that, because what the Church is confronting here is a very significant practical problem. How are the Jewish Christians to relate to the new Gentile Christians who are coming into the Church? And it's very difficult, because, because as, as Jews, um, it was Jews had very little contact with Gentiles because they had to um, keep themselves kosher. They had to eat only kosher food. Uh, they could eat uh, food that had been prepared in the appropriate sort of way. They couldn't allow themselves to be contaminated, really, by contact with people who were living in a non-kosher way, which is Gentiles. And so, um, and, and in fact, uh, many in the Church believed that the Gentiles would have to become Jews then in order for them to have fellowship with the uh, with the Christians who weren't themselves Jews. Um, so God reveals initially to uh, Peter himself in a vision that, uh, that that is not what he has in mind here, that what Christ has accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection is going to be to open the doors of the church to the Gentiles in such a way that they wouldn't have to take on all the burdens of the Old Testament law, and that the church could uh, experience fellowship between both Jews and Gentiles. Um, and but, but the, you know, given even despite that that vision that uh, that Peter gets, in, I guess it's Acts ten, um, the the practical working out of that it continues to be an issue, and uh, there's conflicts in the church some some teachings that uh, that again the Gentiles have to uh, accept the Jewish law, and Paul and Barnabas, who have their very successful ministry uh, in Antioch and other places, um, are, are, are opposed to that. And so they so they bring it to Jerusalem, to the, uh, the to the apostles, and this is what happens in Acts fifteen. This is the first the first ecumenical council in a sense of the church. Um, Peter is uh, addresses the council initially. This is in verses uh, seven. Uh, through um, 12, where he uh, explains uh, how, what the Holy Spirit has revealed to him. And then uh, James, who is sort of acting as the, the presiding uh, um, bishop of, of the council, uh, uh, states the, the, the conclusion based on what Peter said. And then, and then they write this apostolic letter in verses 22 to 29, which they send out to the various churches. And the thing that really jumped out to me now as a Catholic is, again, this verse that we read a little while ago that you read, verse 28, mm-hmm. uh, where in this letter they say it's been decided by the Holy Spirit and by us mm-hmm. not to put any burdens on you Gentile Christians except for these three. And so um, so the Council is is legislating for these churches, both for the Jews and the Gentiles. They're saying, so saying the Jewish Christians don't require more of your gentile brothers than these things and they're telling the gentile brothers you know here's what you need to do uh, don't uh, eat food that's been sacrificed to idols don't eat blood no more blood sausages and all that and uh, uh, and and abstain from improper sexual relations so um so, so the church is legislating and it's legislating with the authority of the holy spirit um and this is, there's no sola scriptura here i that's mean right. although james quotes um um, the Scriptures in, in verses 16 to 18, uh, there's nothing in the Old Testament at this point that specifically addresses this question, right, that mm-hmm. says what Jews and Gentiles must do in this, in this particular situation. So the Church looks to the Holy Spirit to guide it in this council, it reaches a consensus, and the Church then speaks with the authority of the Holy Spirit to the individual Christians. And the decision of the Church is binding on them. Um, and so that. Yeah. That, that
0: is... Great. Well, I'll tell you, just to, to add to what you said, because that I want to make sure the audience gets the significance of this council. It is so important. I didn't see it before. But if you want to get the true significance of verse 28 and 29, in other words, this is what they're saying, given the background that these Gentile believers have come from, partially because if we see in Romans that there, there are weak believers who uh, are not comfortable yet uh, yeah. with those that are eating meat that has been sacrificed to idols. And Paul says, for those that are strong, it doesn't make a difference. yeah, Because they're not gods. It really doesn't make a difference. But yeah. so they don't stand in a burden of my brother, it's better than to not do that. So it's not the, the point here, the church is still being sensitive to some of their... Uh, their weak faith, their superstitions. That's right. They're growing. But if you want to get the significance of verse 28 29, sit down and read Leviticus.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You look at all the regulations yeah. 600 and some odd. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. If the Bible is the sole foundation, inspired foundation, which as Catholics we believe is infallible, it is inspired, mm-hmm. given by the Holy Spirit, it is the sacred Word of God. We believe that because the Catholic Church defined the canon. We understand that. Right. Historically, those of you that listen listening to me that think I'm being a bit brash and just look at history, it's there. But the key is that um, there are all kinds of things in Scripture that as a Protestant, you and I set aside. Right, Why aren't we worshiping on Sunday? Right. All right. Uh, why do we believe in the Trinity? Right. The divinity of Christ. These were defined by the church years later. Yeah. So.
2: Why for, do we include just these 27 books in the New Testament? Exactly. Yeah.
0: You know, this all because, as it says there. There's a no j- divinely
2: inspired table of contents.
0: <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. But just as you pointed out, verse 28, for it does seem good to the Holy Spirit and to us.
2: Yeah yeah and 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 this is a this is very similar too to to the sort of legislating the church does when it says um you know don't eat meat on friday or or don't eat meat on friday during lent or something like that um because these you know these these restrictions they put on 29 are not are not timeless and universal restrictions mm-hmm. right i mean it's not that christians may never ever eat um, anything that has blood in it right but it was rather in this particular situation Given the sensitivity of the Jewish Christians of weak faith, as you as you point out, these were the things that the that the church must do in well,
0: order to move forward. You make a good point, Robert, because yeah. you came from a Lutheran background. Of course, I was brought up Lutheran, and then later as a Presbyterian pastor. Hey, why not follow verse twenty
2: nine? Yeah, right. I mean, yeah. it, this is what we, the they, Lutherans loved our blood sausages too, and yet, uh, yeah. and there was no no real explanation for that Yeah, it,
0: yeah. you know we, we've certainly followed them in their commitment to unchastity but mm-hmm. you know, this is the apostles declaring sending letters out to the church to abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols from blood and from what is strangled and from unchastity yeah. well why don't we still make that a rule because right. as Catholics we recognize that it's the Holy Spirit speaking through us in other words the church the yep. apostles not just me and you Rob not every individual Christian, because that's why we have the confusion. Yeah. But through the church.
2: Yeah. No, exactly. And, and and as as Protestants, you know, we were thought we thought, well, who is the Pope or who are these councils to make these rules for us? You know, only God has that authority. Well, but this this verse speaks directly to that, that God has given to the church the authority to make these sorts of rules in order that the church may fulfill her mission.
0: And you get you quoted Luther's mm-hmm. comment about our conscience is only responsible to scripture. Right. But you, Rob and I may if sitting in our privacy of our homes may have come up with different explanations for verse 29 and decided whether you're going to follow it or I'm going to follow it.
2: Yeah.
0: And that's why yeah. we end up with the confusion we have everywhere amongst Christians sincerely trying to follow Jesus but ending up with different conclusions.
2: Yeah. Uh, right.
0: Well, listen, Rob. Uh, any further comment in these verses? I appreciate you joining us today in the program.
2: No, it's been it's been a lot of fun. I really pre- appreciate it. Hope we can do this again sometime.
0: L- well, I'd love to have you yeah. back. A little break from your your philosophy classes. Um, win- the waning of materialism. New essays on the mind-body problem. That yeah. sounds like kind of a simplistic topic
2: uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm hoping that it, it is actually out now it's not just forthcoming and uh, I'm hoping it'll shake things up because i've got um, 23 papers by some leading philosophers that really challenge the whole idea that that we're just material objects that uh, basically defending the existence of a soul of some kind
0: well so. i'd like to encourage the audience if you're in- interested in the philosophical issues to look up uh on the internet go to one of the bookstores ask for one of his books because the materialism is the soup in which we live, isn't it? Yeah, that's
2: right. We're blind
0: to it. Yeah, and again,
2: at the universities, it's just everywhere. It's just taken for granted.
0: All right. Robert, thanks for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. All right, and all of you listening, thanks a lot. I hope this has been an encouragement to you. Again, go to deepinscripture.com, where you can find out more about our program, as well as Dr. Kuntz and what he's teaching and writing. God bless you. See you again next week.